How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to Beyond the Scrum, a baseball podcast here at The Athletic. I'm Andy McCullough, a writer at The Athletic, here with Mark Carrig, also a writer for The Athletic. Mark, how are you, man? I'm fine, Andy. I am no. Have we dropped the senior part? Is that now official moving forward? Uh, I think you're a senior fashion writer. For the <laughs> I never want to look at a uniform again. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just yeah, kidding. No. Wow. Hey, did you know that the Expos had a uniform? Seven thousand words later, here's Mark Carrig. Wow. You know what? Like, <laughs> I wasn't gonna bring this up, <clears throat> but I swear to God, I almost thought about taking that Yankee uniform and not ranking it in the all-time greats, just so I could get some of that Rust and Dot Andy McCullough energy. Yeah. I mean, I have no room to criticize anyone. I effectively am a Royals fan fiction writer at this point. Um, <laughs> like, I just, you know. Uh, I I uh, like ex- exclusively write about things that happened with the Royals seven years ago. Anyway, uh, we're back. We're hanging in there, staying safe. Hope you all are doing the same. And we are here with a uh, well. We have a guest. I wouldn't call him a great guest. Let's see how he does. But we have Evan Drellick, one half of the Athletics uh, reporting superstar duo. The other half, obviously, is Ken Rosenthal. They've been at the forefront of more or less every major story in major league baseball over the past, you know, six months or so. And we're here to just talk to Evan about what it's like doing his job during this time, during the pandemic, what he's focusing on and to talk through some of uh, these major stories he's been working on over the past year or so. How are you drills? You know, I had a radio career, right? Literally solo hosted in one of the major sports markets in the country. Just if we're going to, describe my my fitness to be able to participate in your lovely podcast and you just, did get just would like fired to know that right uh, that was the television job the radio oh, okay. job liked me the television job did not like me. <sighs> this is like watching barry horowitz pat himself on the back right now <laughs> yeah yeah barry horowitz congratulating himself for the time he pinned chris candida <laughs> draws has no uh, idea what the hell we're talking about do you, Drills, do you wrestling? ever think about the sliding doors of like where, you know, how you might be on EEI right now yelling about how negative the athletics coverage is of the Red Sox? Oh, yeah. No, I brought it up to Ken, like uh, Ken Rosenthal, I don't know, maybe a week ago. Yeah. Just the, the, the way things have, have worked out. I'm, I'm pretty pleased that we're all teammates. Well, maybe not all of us, but <laughs> just that Ken and I are teammates. Wow. Did you like doing radio? I loved it. I, it, I really, truly liked it, and I almost stayed to do it. It was, it was the connection with the people, with the masses, the plebes, was really uh, enjoyable. Can I tell you a story about that, Drills, just real quick, about your radio Please. days? Please. It's a podcast. You can do whatever the hell that's you want. That's right. It's our podcast, too. So I was covering the Mets at the time, and I think that's about when you were on the radio, or at least had been a frequent guest on the radio, which then led to being on the radio more. But anyhow... There was some screed that you had gone on that ended up making the rounds. And, uh, you know, I wasn't totally aware of it. I walk into the clubhouse one morning. And David Wright, who did this often, kind of waves me over in the corner. I'm like, what do you got? He goes, do you know this guy, Evan Drellick? <laughs> I'm like, yes. Dude pulls his phone out. 
and just starts going by the blow by blow of like whatever rent you'd gone on that morning. And it was awesome. Like, I, I, I don't know if I've ever told you that story, but like when I heard Andy bring up EEI and you screaming and yelling about the Red Sox, like I had to put that out there because I, I remember thinking to myself, my God, Drawls has made it. He's made it. If, if my obituary is written tomorrow, the Astro story might be third graph. Second graph is probably still lost his mind on Kirk and Callahan's morning show in Boston. Yeah, what, yeah. what was you were doing? Like some Howard Beale rant about how like radio doesn't get to the truth of the matter the way the printed word does or something? So the, these hosts were just beating up the Red Sox writers uh, and lotting us all in as, as one. And, you know, my big thing is hashtag nuance. Uh, you know, and, and it, it turns out that, um, you know, I, I, I actually am one of the, the reporters, I think, in this sphere who's a little more willing to push. Uh, and, and I really just didn't appreciate the, the constant barrage. And uh, I, I went on the radio and, and properly defended myself and, and our breed. And uh, lo and behold, they, they started paying me to go on the radio, which was not my intent. It's just the way that worked out afterward. Yeah, that was some real jujitsu you provided there. I uh, I I was angry, and it, that that fed into exactly what they wanted on the radio. They liked screaming and yelling, uh, but you know the talking head. Th- I'm kind of happy in in the athletic role because doing the uh, in depth reporting is still actually more satisfying. I liked the radio. I loved it, but I I didn't want to lose the ability to actually you know, reveal things to the world. Yes. And where would we be without you, Seymour Hirsch? Um, so <laughs> when you were doing, when you were doing the radio thing, did you find like, was part of the shtick like that you're from New York or did that, was that not part of the deal? Yeah. So the radio, I would do normal hosting where we're talking about Red Sox post game, right? I'm the guy who comes on after the, uh, the broadcast wraps up, and that's just a regular call-in show. But on this morning show, I was a character. They made me a character, and I, it turns out I guess I am something of a character. Uh, so you know, it, it got very personal. Like I was, I'm very open with people. I, I would discuss family life. I'd mention girlfriends. It, it was it was a strange dual existence to to wear a reporter hat on one hand and then also be this. It was it was something closer to pure entertainment. You know, you you wouldn't know much about that, but uh, that, that was something I was doing. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, this is so good awesome, times. Drells. Yeah, this this is a good one. You should be the third mic on this pod. Oh my goodness! I've been waiting for somebody to realize that I had a radio career, but that's okay. You should just you okay. should start telling people more often. Actually, <laughs> just just. Uh, uh, Pat myself further on the back. Do yeah, you think idea. you're more likely to get punched in the face in a bar in Boston or Houston? Definitely Boston. Oh, There's interesting. no question Boston. Because they know me better in Boston ah. because um, for a variety of reasons. A, I was on the radio. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, <laughs> but B, <laughs> but B, you know the red the Red Sox story. Whereas you know, like a guy like Mike Fire, the Astros story became so large yeah. um, that that I think in, in some way it, it, people weren't focusing on well who were the reporters who broke it, which is fine. But in Boston, it became 
uh, you know, who's, who's the rat that's trying to screw us over, which is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous approach, but that's fandom, right? That's, that's this crazy zany thing we sign up for. Drell, so I, you know, in Boston, like you said, you, you wrote it how you saw it. And I think as much as people in the business, that's the goal all the time. And that's what you kind of push for. Look, that it's easier said than done. All right. It's tough to sort of be on an island sometimes. So how did you deal with that part of it? I think I was kind of naive going into it. Um, you know, in Houston, when I was there, whatever, six years ago, I just, I, the, the line I had always put in my cover letters was I'm a reporter first, just one who happens to write about sports, which sounds really lame, but I believed it because that's what I was a, taught. I probably had a similar line in a cover letter. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, mine, mine was closer to truthful and, um, <laughs> got him. Oh, all right, all right. It's okay. on, baby. And, no, all right. Okay. All right. Wow. No, so, but but you know you don't you don't quite realize I think the the um, what that means when you're when you're young and you're doing it and you're starting out and how it fits into the the entire environment uh, and and the different impacts, which is one of those corporate PR buzzwords I despise, but it. There's a lot that comes with it that you don't quite realize, uh, and and over time I've I've come to have a better, you know, kind of understanding of what goes along with this territory, and it's it's messy, you know, it's when and it's just baseball. It's this eye-opening thing of if you're going to push to tell the truth in baseball that some people don't like, holy crap! What about the rest of the world when we're not dealing with sports? You know, it's it's. Uh, it can be a little disheartening, frankly. I, I was always been curious about this with folks who, like you, like you, as you just described, there, like there, there's, you're reporter first. Like, I, you know, I've had to write stories that aren't real popular, and, you know, I the thing that I would always resent about people crushing me for it was that there was always this assumption that I was doing because I had an agenda. Like I had some point to prove or, or somebody to go get or whatever. And, you know, and this is going to also sound lame, but on my side of it, it was always like, hey, I was just doing the reporting and this is what came out. And that's it. There was no agenda to it. But, you know, I can't say that, right? Like it's, it's hard to say that without looking like you're being totally defensive. So I would just wear it. And I'm just curious, like what, what of criticism, what are the criticisms that you'd heard through the years bothers you the most or or you feel is like the most unfair that uh you know and is also tough to kind of talk about because it looks bad to talk about i don't know anything come to mind well i became very convinced the story i'll refer back to is the astros the owner and the head of pr got together with with the top two editors of the houston chronicle uh asking to remove me from the beat you know, whether they wanted me totally fired, I don't know. But they, they wanted me off of covering the Astros. Uh, and I didn't publicize that at the time. Um, but I, I do think back to earlier this uh, last year, you know, Anthony Fenich, um, when he revealed how the Astros were handling him, and then we get to the Stephanie Epstein story. There's a power that teams have and leverage if they know that reporters will not speak up um, when they're handling them poorly. And one of the things the Astros certainly tried to do with me was, you know, convey this perception that I was out to get them, that, that for some reason I arrived in Houston 
and just decided, I'm going to target you because of some sort of nefarious motive, you know, which, which is ridiculous. Could there be a reporter who exists like that? I'm sure. The vast majority that I've ever encountered in this business do not operate that way. Um, and there's this training that we all have. We are all taught not to inject ourselves into a story. So if there's conflict with an organization, we don't tell people about it because we don't want to come off as grandstanding. We don't want to make it about us. The problem is that gives too much of a license in extreme situations, and I think Houston hit that point, uh, for teams to, to push back and, and kind of manipulate you and the perception of you. You know, what if Fennish doesn't say anything? It was at the point that Fennish says something where I told the story simply on Twitter uh, that, yeah, by the way, they tried to get me fired. These are all the other things that I saw there that were screwed up from a media relations uh, standpoint. And, and it goes back to control and controlling the narrative. And, you know, Andy and I, I know over the years, have talked a little bit about his Royals experience. I don't know if he wants to go into it, but I think he lived a little bit of the same thing with the Royals, it, it, where They'll try to paint you in a certain they love way. Me. What are you talking about? Right, but no, but no, no. but the problem is it, it, the the instinct to keep silent is good only to a certain point because if 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 you if no one ever says anything, um, it doesn't change and nobody knows the reality of it. And and I, I think the reality of it does matter in understanding what an organization is doing and delivering the picture of how an organization operates to people. I. I, I I think people have to get over this fear of, well, they'll, they'll paint me a certain way. Yeah, you just got to suck it up. If this is what's happening, that's, that's what you got to say. Yeah, the, the Royals, um, I think it's, uh, it's a similar – it's similar in some ways and dissimilar in not. I mean like the, the, the kind of difference with the Royals is they weren't like engaged in a widespread you know, sort of cheating scheme and weren't basically like trying to optimize to the point of uh, illegality um, to the point where – uh, Eric Hosmer told me this spring, we didn't even steal signs from second base, bro. Uh, which, uh, but it was more, it, it, there was a lot of things about like perception and um, one big issue we always had was uh, does what happens in the clubhouse when reporters are in the room, is that on the record or is that off limits? And that was a constant push-pull between myself, the the players, some folks in the front office, uh, just about like what is for public consumption and what isn't, and it's a it's a small sort of battlefield per se, but it kind of does get into the bigger issue of teams wanting to control um, what is written about them and what the perception is about them. You know, there were folks in the Royals organization who didn't like the idea that sometimes I quoted the players cursing because sometimes they cursed and there were, you know, players who didn't like, you know, if they screamed something across the room in this big scene, if I like wrote about it and I was like, well, you, you know, you did this in front of, uh, 10 reporters, like it's fair game. And, you know, so there was just constant back and forth. And I think that's something when you're on the beat that you're always kind of engaging in this, you know, uh, the back and forth about, you know, jockeying to, you know, what's off limits, what's out of bounds, what's fair game, you know, and it's, it's one of the reasons why doing the job can be really challenging, I think. Dude, you know what, like listening to both of you, it reminds me of something that is, kind of not intuitive, but totally 100% true. Covering a team in a smaller market in that way is so much harder because 
all of those people in the organization, upstairs, in the clubhouse, the clubbies, the trainers, everybody, they know exactly what you're writing every day. They see the yeah. headlines, the papers sitting there. Whereas now I, I, I was on a beat for 11 years, 10 of them in New York. Um, there is just too much going on for, for you to really lock in on, you know, all of it, you know? So you, you could go and like, you know, write something that's, that's tough and it might not even be totally seen. Whereas with, with in you guys' cases, Kansas City and in Houston for, with Evan, I would imagine that every time you wrote anything that was like unflattering or challenged something they were trying to put out there, you were going to hear about it. Yeah, I remember I, one time I uh, I was going back and forth with Dayton Moore about something, and I said, uh, why are you even reading what I write? And he just looked at me like I was the stupidest man in America. Like, <laughs> You're the beat writer for the one newspaper in this town. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, good point, good point. All right, well, okay, you know, but that's there, fine. There's absolutely strength in numbers to, yeah. to Craig's, to Craig's totally. point because if, if you are in a one-paper town, more likely than not, you're probably going to be the only one who is either in a reasonable position to be asking tougher questions. And again, yeah. these are questions about the operation of a baseball team. This isn't war. Um, you know, it, it it's something that that they again will try to leverage. Um, and you know, I didn't really answer Mark's question about what bothered me most, but you know, I'd, I'd seen all of that. The Drelic is out to get us. The Astros very much tried to paint me that way. And, and it was frustrating, um, but I think now um, it's clear that it, this, this wasn't some fictionalized vendetta. It, it was, there, were, there were issues in that organization that, that came to a head. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a fair way to describe what happened to the Houston Astros. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, man. Hey, uh, what... Uh, so is basically like, what, what do you, what's your priority right now? What, what are you most interested in right reporting on right now during, during the pandemic? My, my job title, uh, which, which has kind of changed in even the short time I've been here, but it, it, it's still focused on business of baseball, right? So I'm not game dependent. Neither are you. And, and, and I think the company's actually done a great job and, and many sports writers outside the company have done a great job of finding stories that, uh, are not dependent on games, but business of baseball. Well, the decision to restart games and, and whether or not they do that um, theoretically falls right into my wheelhouse. Uh, so it, it's it, I, I like to understand the how and the why uh, of of how things are going, as as I'm sure you two do as as well. Like when they announced that oh we're going to refund tickets, that didn't strike me as an interesting story because it's kind of a, a, a what you know, and and it's important to, to people who have money outstanding with teams that they get their money back. There's no question about that. Um, but I, but I, I like to understand how things operate. That that's that's kind of my my reporting goal at the moment. But it's been tough, you know. It's it's. Do we talk about? I'm giving away story ideas here. Do we talk about the impact of all this on free agency right now, before we even understand what the season's going to look like if the season is going to start? Um, it, so, it's, it, and you also have to consider public appetite to some degree uh, when you're dealing with the economics of millionaires and billionaires. Right. Uh, it, it's not the easiest thing for people to stomach, and you've got to, you know, you, you have a little sensitivity to it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's reasonable. Um, it trying to, 
I think I think we, uh, you know, I feel like as an industry have done a decent job keeping that in perspective. I think there was some stuff early on where uh, we maybe looked a little silly, but I think for the most part, um, we've done a decent job of not painting the baseball players as, um, you know, actual victims in this. At, at the same time, though, I do think there is a there is kind of a weird perception of these players in some ways they're kind of being um you know i think they're going to be kind of painted as being greedy if they are unwilling to take a pay cut when they are potentially willing to go play baseball in the midst of a global pandemic and put themselves at risk of catching this virus and i find that uh that sort of public you know push pull that's going to come out in the next month or two to be fairly interesting. Um, but I, I also don't know if players, you know, want to speak about that or fully, you know, even recognize it in some ways. The the element of fairness is something that I look at a lot because it, I, I think people, the public, or at least some of the public and, and media, including me, look at baseball and have this expectation of fairness that doesn't exist in other parts of the world, you know, if, if baseball players come back, uh, I don't think they'd be out of their minds to say, "Hey, we should have close to our full pay because it's hazard pay. We're, we're jeopardizing or, or, or increasing our risk amidst the pandemic." That's totally reasonable. Then, the, then the other side goes, "Well, there's all these other essential industries that are still operating and have been operating uh, that, to my knowledge, probably haven't received." You know, widespread pay increases. I don't think the FedEx and the, the USPS delivery people are, are seeing changes in pay. I could be wrong about that. I haven't looked into it. Um, but I, I think about that a, a, a lot when covering these commissioner's office and players association topics. Uh, the, the, there, there seems to be an expectation in baseball that we, you know, we hold it up idealistically compared to the rest of the world. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think it's something to, to recognize that, that we do do. Yeah. Well, it gets into the same way that the players always lose the PR battle is that it's always, you know, you're, it's tough to feel sympathetic for millionaires, even when they're going up against billionaires. Um, and they've never really figured out how to basically explain how much money a billion dollars is compared to a million dollars because most people will never see a million dollars. And so it's, it's just a, a, another manifestation of a, of a, a fight they've been having, you know, since before Marvin Miller. If they had a strike though, and, and again, that might change. I, a, I don't think one was likely B this, this entire experience may impact the chances of that for a variety of reasons. But in this day and age, if you had a work stoppage that was, um, purely based on a labor dispute and not a pandemic, I, you know, I think that there's a general feeling of of angst and anxiety and dislike for the billionaire class that's more pronounced than 25 years ago than the last time we had a we had a work stoppage. So I I wonder if in fact there was a work stoppage if everyone would gang up on the players, but probably you know there, there's still a very large percentage that that would feel that way but maybe it's a little different than it was 25 years ago did you follow the democratic primary all right whatever um <laughs> we yeah we won't go down that road i do think it would be i think it would be uh it, it might not be the coverage would certainly probably be less like uh pro management 
than in years past, but I, I, I'm not sure the public reaction would be altogether all that different. I think people like sports and they want to watch sports and they feel like the players are compensated fairly. That's the probably the, the majority position. I would that's think. not a that's not a high bar to clear, by the way, for the coverage to be less uh, management oriented. I, I, it's been the last couple of weeks. I've been working on a few stories where I've had to dive into the clips, and and man, like the, it it's unbelievable. Early in the early days, especially um, the bias that was coming out in, in coverage of these issues, just it was unbelievable. So I would hope that it's a little better than that in 2020 or, or, you know, and moving forward. Yeah. And, and, and look, I, I think there, there still can actually be room for, uh, for management to be miscast too. Yeah. I think um, that's true as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that there's so much cynicism these days that people f- read into things um, that might not be there. And, and even, even in, in this pandemic, there's this clamor for uh, teams to pay, game day employees who, who have been outsourced, right, through third-party vendors, Aramark, whatever. Um, and, and teams have paid some amount of money. It might not be enough, depending on what your definition of enough is. Uh, but, you know, they're industry people who, who, frankly, are worried about their own salaries coming from the team, but uh, who, who rightly point out, I think, to some degree, well, what is the responsibility of Aramark? Why are we holding the teams accountable and not the the third party vendors uh, that they're hiring to pay these people, and you know that's that's a fair question. Uh, but it goes back to that earlier point that we we look at we we don't seem to accept in baseball other businesses do it this way, so therefore it should be this way. Uh, that there does seem to be this idealistic approach. It seems impossible that minor league baseball will be played in twenty twenty. Um, why are folks pretending otherwise? You're talking about minor league baseball on mass, on, on scale at all the stadiums, right? There, there, there could be some sort of form of it, depending on what the major league games look like. I mean, you know, the back... form of minor league baseball that has people watching, you know, like the Reading Phillies or, you know, the, the Oklahoma City, uh, what are they called? Dodgers. Yeah. You, you know right. what I mean? Like, it seems. I tend to agree it, with you. It seems that, that it's. And, and the major stumbling block there's kind of obvious that whereas Major League Baseball can get by without fans for a time because of the, of the money they make from the media deals and the TV rights, Minor League Baseball doesn't have that. The entire business is predicated on people coming in and, and you know buying the, the, the Albuquerque Isotopes t-shirt or uh, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, go B-Mets. Um, <laughs> they're, they're if the Major League games restart, the assumption is that it's going to be without fans for a time. And you have people like Randy Levine coming out publicly already, president of the Yankees saying, we need to get fans in there. It's not practical to do it for a, a long term. So whatever that, you know, Major League Baseball starts in June let's, or July, let's say July. Um, you know, if they could get fans back in in August, well, that would that would reasonably be the time that maybe minor league uh, baseball could restart. It's only when the fans could return. Uh, and, and you're still at the mercy of all the government decrees. So if they have a season, it's going to be shorter than the major league season. And you're right. The the economics of minor league baseball make it that it, it certainly feels more unlikely than the major league season. Statement of the obvious, Andy. But well, I just, but it's the sort of thing like, shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't the discussion just be like, okay, how do we save minor league baseball uh, long-term? 
Like, I just feel, I don't know, maybe the margins are thin enough that, you know, you can't really think long-term. It's just a year-to-year existence. But it, it just seems, like, strange to me. Like, um, I don't know. It just seems it just seems odd. The, 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 the way that this, uh, I guess, the, the, the pandemic is being framed um, by the stakeholders of the sport is, is strange to me in general. But uh, this is just another sort of uh, aspect of it, I guess. Well, the minor league negotiations have taken a turn because of the pandemic. You know, the, you're talking about the long-term outlook, um, whereas minor league baseball had this PR uh, uptick that was working in their favor because they you know, they went public, they went to uh, public officials, you had Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren weighing in, and now you know they reasonably can't do that. So major league baseball is going to probably come out with what they want uh, long-term. The minor league owners. Without the cash flow of the season this year, they're just not really in a position to fight it. They, 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 they have to take what they can get. Um, and then the question is going to become there, how far does Major League Baseball push? Do they try to kind of uh, drive it all the way home and risk the politicians getting involved again? Uh, or kind of say, all right, we're, we're getting generally what we want. And if, and if they're going to take teams out of minor league baseball, if they're going to drop down from 160 to 120, they're going to have to make it worth those owners' while, uh, and and those teams that would become kind of independent in this dream league scenario. The whole argument was was predicated on those teams say they're not going to be able to survive. If Major League Baseball makes enough concessions so that minor league owners feel that th- those franchises can survive outside the normal rung of minor league baseball, they'll probably strike a deal. But as with all these negotiations. Minor league owners haven't shown us their books. You know, it, it's it's we're always kind of taking their word in these negotiations that no, we cannot afford this. You sure? It, it's it's impossible to know definitively without somebody opening the books, and they're never going to do it. It's easier to believe, uh, but you still don't have uh, proof, I guess, if they're not yeah, if they're not showing you the numbers. Correct in any direction. That's the same thing with major league owner. You know, throughout time with the leagues. Negotiations with the Players Association. We can't afford this. You know, by what standard? You know, but to, to, it's all about their definition of what a reasonable profit is, or, or um, you know, it, it, and that's where the players are at a disadvantage. We know what they make. We don't know what the owners make definitively. How do you navigate that, Evan? You're trying to cover this fairly, and, and clearly, there's an information bias. There always has been. There always probably will be. So. Given that dynamic, you know what the players make, we don't know what the owners make. Um, how, how do you navigate that stuff as you're covering these issues? You just have to be upfront with what you do and do not know. If you don't know something that you think is material, you acknowledge it, right? It, it, I, don't, I don't know what the other approach can be um, except for asking for the information that you don't have from your sources and people who, who might know it. Um, but it, it's tricky because it becomes speculative and, and, and that's, you know, when reporting, we want to be firm about it. But if, if you know, if we're on a podcast, we can, we can look at issues and say, well, here are all the X, Y, Z possibilities. Um, you know, maybe they're thinking this, maybe they're thinking that. But if you can't get confirmation, they're thinking it um, or that, that, that it, it, whatever the subject is, that that's indeed influencing them to act in a certain way. It can be uncomfortable to throw it in there, but you have to trust a little bit of a your sources and 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 
and B, logic. You know, the, the decision to come back from the pandemic is going to be logic driven. It, it's it, it's going it, your intuition as a reasonable thinking person, if I may call you that, Mark and Andy. Um, you know, it is not going to be typically too far off from uh, what the people making the decisions are thinking. But that's because you've been around, right? It, it helps to have been involved in these processes or, or, or observed them for many years. Um, you know, there, there aren't many surprises, but you don't know definitively all the time if indeed something is a factor. You know, I, I like constantly with Ken Rosenthal, I'm saying, well, could this be a reason they're doing this? Or could this, be? and you don't know, and it can be very hard to get an answer as to motives. Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I guess uh, maybe I've, Maybe I'm I'm like failing the the smell test on that one because like uh, when you say you know like the the like you can figure out the logic I uh, not totally I'm str- but, but I'm struggling you, a little bit in in this scenario but I guess the logic is just everyone wants to make money so with which one uh, with when baseball restarts I mean that's the Occam's right yes now, yeah well and that look the depressing part of of covering these topics truthfully honestly and I, I say it to people privately and um, I'm not in my radio career. I wasn't afraid to acknowledge these things publicly. Um, the depressing part of this is realizing the bottom line is is truly the bottom line. Right. It's money. It, right. It's it, every discussion comes back to who is paying what uh, at the end of the day. And the pandemic is interesting because uh, how much are you willing to risk? There's this there's this incredible downside, awful, tragic scenario one can envision where someone. Uh, becomes fatally ill. Is the sport prepared for that? Are are the fans prepared for that? Um, for the the worst case scenario of baseball returning, and you can make all the counterpoints. But this is exactly it. You and I, all three of us, can sit here and formulate those counterpoints without hearing it from top major league officials, people sitting at home, um, or, or going about their regular lives, going to the supermarket and leaving the house scarcely can also contract the disease, right? I'm not saying that intuition is a substitute for reporting. I'm saying that you do have to be, at least in formulating your questions for people, that's what guides you to some degree is, is, is logic because there's not a ton of people who can always address these issues with expertise. I, I, I appreciate you walking through the process of this stuff because, I don't know, I think just like anything else in which the end result is a, a product that you put out there, I, I feel like there's very little thought given to how you get to that point. And I think it's very easy, especially now, to just be like, well, that guy's got an agenda, whatever. And we talked about this earlier. You know, It's very easy to just, if you read something you don't want to read or it's something you don't want to believe, um, it is so easy to be to dismiss it all. And I think what's been... I think really cool to hear on this end of it is you're walking us through this and it's clearly not just throwing stuff against the wall. Like these are judgment calls, deliberations that you're making pretty much every single time you make a phone call and, and ask somebody a question. Like there's a lot of things going on and, and the product at the end is a reflection of that, not just some nonsense being thrown up against the wall, which I think is an important point to make. Yeah, honestly, guys, I miss... And there's nothing stopping me from doing it. I just have to take the initiative to do it myself. I miss doing um, stories that don't require quite as much thought, which can be totally enjoyable stories. And, and uh, it's 
but when it's kind of constantly this, um, when 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 you they're, they're they're for the sport they're complex subjects you know and and uh, it, God bless the reporters who are dealing with government on a daily basis right it, it's um, but I, I I sometimes sometimes I just miss like X Y Z person said this here's a story about it you know the, the kind of the old beat life uh, where where you're not trying to pick through everything and and running to different people to verify different things and um, it's uh, it's weary, but it's but it's rewarding. Yeah, Question no, we, we get it, Neil Sheehan. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I miss. You know what I miss? How many obtuse references can you make in one podcast? Uh, I was trying Don't to figure out him. who with the Astros would be your John Paul Van, and I can't figure that out. So um, these are the things I. These are the. These I can't are the, wait till you end up at the ringer. <laughs> wow! Damn! Wow! I mean. Yeah, you want to talk about... Well, no, I never interviewed with The Ringer. Uh, no, I never interviewed with The Ringer. I thought I had a job <laughs> interview at Grantland, but it turns out I was just talking to someone there, and they like didn't want to talk to me. Grantland uh, or Grantland? Who, who, whatever, who cares? Um, but, uh, yeah. But John, John, uh, yeah, anyway, you read a book, Drells. Uh, I do miss the one of the interesting challenges about where we work is like, you kind of need to do a little bit more than the, like, here's what a guy said. Uh, you know, here's a story, um, which is, you know, uh, liberating in some ways and, uh, and challenging in others. But I think that's kind of, uh, you know, that work is rewarding, but then there's also days where it's like, I miss taking a day off, but also being at work, uh, which is, you know, was something that I would do on the beat, you know, for like weeks at a time back in the day. Uh, those were good times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the job when you're yeah, on we're writing beat, Sunday right? features every day. You're, and, and if, well, and, yeah. you know, it, if yeah. you're not doing a Sunday feature in a regular daily newspaper life, you're still producing a work product that, at the end of the day, makes you feel like I did my job today. But yeah. in, in the space between us putting out our regular Sunday features, it's um, you know, the it, job there when can you're be on the beat there. is the job when you're on the beat is difficult, but also relatively straightforward. It's just like, okay, what is the most important thing? that happened with the Mets or the Red Sox or the Dodgers today. And, you know, what, you know, what's the most important thing going on with the team? Okay, here's a story about it. All right, what's, like, the second most important thing that's going on with the team? All right, here's a slightly shorter story about it. Uh, okay, what are other semi-interesting things going on? All right, here's a couple sentences about each. And it's just, like, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to do that work well, and it's certainly difficult to do that job, um, you know, consistently and with any sort of um, – you know, like flair and all that sort of stuff, but it, but it is like a relatively straightforward assignment, and so there is a there is an aspect of that that can be, uh, you know, uh, it's nice, I guess, when you're, you know, if you're searching like at, at times like these when I'm like really searching for things to write, I miss like you know bothering guys about hamstring strains and things like that. Those were those were easier times, right? Because it's it's like the it it still makes you feel like it, like you you did. Your work that day. Yeah, you did your job, yeah. Dude, just being present, honestly, right? Like, uh, you know, yeah. I, I feel like there were a lot of times on the beat where what I wrote that day wasn't very good, all right? Like, it just, it was straightforward, and it was the stuff you had to go get done, and you tried to just make it as, as good as possible, but at the end of the day, you, you didn't think about it again. It just wasn't very good. It served its purpose, but, you know, I guess that was what kind of Andy's referring to, like, take a day off at work. 
you know, like you get it done, like you hit your deadline or whatever, and it doesn't have, you know, the S word or the F word in it and, and it's fine. But, you know, <laughs> I think the key for, I always thought like, all right, on the flip side, I'm there. And, and some rando conversation that means absolutely nothing that day, a week from now turns into, oh, wait a minute, this is a story. And so this quote unquote day off in which you, you wrote something you didn't, you didn't think about again, because you were there and just gone through the exercise led to something that is a story that you might talk about later on, which, uh, you know, I, I kind of miss that part of it, you know, like yeah. when you're, you're at work and you just sort of, because just, your presence is what is, is the biggest thing you're doing that day, uh, things would come to you rather than this setup where, man, you got to push for everything. All right. Like there's no bumping into stuff. There, it's, it feels like, <laughs> my goodness, it's constant grind. It, it's it, totally different, but right, especially right now. Yeah. Look, yeah. I was working, I'm working from home like all of us now, but I was doing that. I probably went to maybe 10 games in 2019 when I started at the athletic that, that and, and this year I was intending to go to, to many more. Um, but, but adjusting to that phone life is very tough coming from, um, the beat system it be, because you, like you say, you, you're not going to just bump into it going somewhere every day. You have to be picking up the phone constantly. Um, and you know, <laughs> Rob Manfred's not in the clubhouse. Tony Clark's not in the clubhouse. Uh, that's why I get so excited for the winter meetings and the GM meetings when, Oh boy, our dignitaries are going to speak. Um, but it's, on a personal level, that's been tougher for me. Well, Drells, I hope that we are able to see you in the future. I hope we're able to see anyone in the future, even you. Um, it uh, really appreciate you coming on. This was fun. Uh, you should look into broadcasting or something like that. It sounds like you might have a future there. 617-779-7937, taking your calls now until 2 a.m. <laughs> on your WEEI. <laughs> yeah, you, you you would just you you would do the late shift on EEI and just you know hear people yelling oh about you know, Pedroia's knee or something. That's I loved life. it. That's great. Just That's let Dave, Dave, Dave Lennon's childhood friends calling you up at two thirty in the morning, just lighting <laughs> yeah. your ass up. It's yeah, so great. Murph and squeeze box and Ozon. yeah, freaking <laughs> yeah. hey, let, let's it's freaking yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mac yeah. D. Mac, Mac D, guys who are like, nah, none of us know someone named Sully. Come on, man. That's, right. Oh, no, Obi. Is that Obi's the other o one? Obi, Ocon, Oaks, yeah. All the guys <laughs> from Boston. Did I ever tell you about the time, maybe I've said this already on the pod, but the time that I went to Boston to do the a story on, on Rich Hill, and, uh, and uh, I went to Milton High School where Rich went, and I thought, like, I, you know, I was spending, I spent a couple days with him, but I was like, you know, I'm here, like, why don't I go look at his high school yearbook? And I felt like it would be, like, weird to ask Rich, like, hey, can I look at your yearbook? But I saw so I was just like, all right, so I drive over to the high school, explain what's going on, say, hey, I'm a reporter with the LA Times, blah, 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 or whatever. Like, can I see your 1999 class yearbook? And they're like, uh, yeah, sure. And uh, I go in and I like open it up and I'm looking through it. There was like a couple funny things in there. Rich was like most likely to be famous or something like that, you know. And then the principal bursts in and he's just like, "Hey, what are you doing? You looking up dirt on Richie? Huh? What are you doing? You doing some kind of article on Richie?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh no, hey, no, sorry." He's like, "What? Are you, what are you trying to do? Huh? You trying to throw dirt on Richie? Yeah." And I assume those are the guys just calling you on EEI. 
just like furious about Chris Sale's fastball velocity. That's the good stuff. That was a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll send you some audio. You can you can loop it into the next the next episode. I'm good, but thanks. All right. Uh, if you uh, enjoyed the pod, please rate and subscribe us on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.